Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 281 is recorded live May 12th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the state of Michigan where not only do we have water in the rivers and the lake, but it also comes down from the sky. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. A little damp, but well. Yeah, now, is that damp from diving or is that damp from just being out in the weather? Well, today it's because we've had tea storms in and out all day. Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be quite that bad, but I could hear the rumblings in my office at work. So it was. it's, it's coming through. I don't think we had anything too super strong, did we? Nothing really, really bad. I did have a lot of rain, though. I haven't. I didn't notice any of the rivers being or creeks being exceptionally high. Uh, but well, we, the uh, sidewalks in, over here in my area were flooded. Oh, the sidewalks? Yeah. Well, I mean, it came down literally buckets for maybe twenty, thirty minutes. Oh, I just guess I wasn't looking in the right spot, or I was busy doing something else for a while. Well, I know the the uh, cloud layer was about thirty feet this morning. <laughs> it was a little low, and I know when I left work, the fog was coming off of Lake Michigan. Gives that nice. Yeah. You were you were lucky to have a quarter mile visibility lateral, and up, uh, the trees were covered. So not a good day to be on the big lake or flying a plane. Uh, flying for sure, big lake unless you had a really 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 good GPS. Maybe a nice uh, radar wouldn't be too bad. Radar either. would be fine. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, last week, I, I I listened to every single episode that we do uh, just to kind of critique and tune things, and the audio was a little clippy, so we apologize for that. Uh, I don't. I think it was still listenable, but uh, there was a setting uh, that it ran through that uh, must, was was clipping it. So I'm not. I'm going to try and avoid it for this week. Uh, but thank you for listening. Thank you for everybody who's in the chat room. We had Mark pop in for a while. Uh, how you get in the chat room is you go to TalkShoe.com, and we are show 73759. We typically record on Thursdays live on the TalkShoe, uh, sometimes between 9 and 10. Try to keep it closer to 9, but we are in diving season, so you never know what's going to happen. Somebody might get in the water. So let's, uh, I mean, do you have anything you want to plug before we get into the news, man? Just no, I'm just anxious to... Uh... Look at all these little items you have listed. Some of them are pretty interesting. Yeah, we had the first one, um, the first few, like we always like to do, is follow up with articles we've talked about in the past. Yeah, our gripes with, with mainstream media is it's hard to ever get any sense of follow up. And this one, if you remember, they had the filmmaker, uh, Wesley Skiles, and he drowned in 2010. It, his wife has sued, and who she decided to sue is the equipment manufacturer. Uh, I did. I don't know if we, re- we covered it at the time, but he was actually diving a rebreather. 
Uh, he was a, uh, Wesley Skiles is a diver and cinematographer with over 7,000 dives and 100 films to his credit. He died during a dive off Boynton Beach, Florida in July 2010 while filming a documentary for National Geographic. His widow, Terry Skiles, claimed her husband drowned when oxygen sensors and electronics on his, on, I'll say his, on a dive right, O2PTIMA brand, Optima, that, that looks a little odd, uh, rebreather failed during Monday's openings. Uh, the lawyers, uh, Spangleberg, Spilby, and Lieber, Dustin Hoffman said Skiles drowned while attending, while sending from an 83 foot dive when the Optima rebreather shut off oxygen minutes before he lost consciousness. Herman said the oxygen sensor in the rebreather was known to deliver incorrect readings and work improperly when covered in water. That is why a defect is such a dangerous one because it's a transient failure. Herman said divers don't even know the rebreather has failed because they are still getting signals. Everything looks okay, but there might be dangerous levels of oxygen in the rebreather, and the water might come off later, and the oxygen returns to a safe level. A diver is a close call, never knew it. Herman, who requested up to $25 million in damages during Monday's opening, said dive right place rebreather in the market without properly testing it. You don't know if it's broken or if somebody needs those alarms and they don't work, Herman said. The water is on the electronics, and the diver needs those alarm, and the diver dies. Unlike open-circuit scuba equipment, which a diver exhales, air ultimately enters the water. Rebreather recirculates the diver's exhaled air, removing carbon dioxide and reusing remaining oxygen. The defense argues diver air rather than a defect of equipment caused Kyle's death. During Monday's opening, Concanon and Charles David Concanon told jurors' post-accident tests showed the equipment worked properly. By contrast, Concanon claimed Skiles rarely used rebreathing equipment and was not certified to use the Optum, which he had borrowed from a colleague because the rebreather was required for the project. He was a lousy rebreather diver, Concanon said, noting uh, Skiles typically dives with open circuit equipment. He did not like rebreathers, he did not like to use them, and he did not like to use them for filming. Concanon argued Skiles, whom he accused of using prescribed painkillers, at twice therapeutic levels and diving on less than five hours sleep, manually turned the rebreather off and forgot to restart it on his ascent. As you watch a video of Skiles dive, you see him making mistakes the whole time, Concanon said. It's because he's impaired. It's because he's an inexperienced. Trial in the case expected to last through next week. So a little bit of both sides there, which is what you expect in a trial. You have one side, which is the uh, lawyers for the rebreather maker. Uh, who are saying that the diver shouldn't have been diving it, which I think they've got a strong case. If it's true that he was not certified in that equipment and that was not his rebreather, I can't see how without some gross negligence on the part of the equipment manufacturer that they're at all responsible. How can it be more gross than an in, a non-qualified individual using the equipment? Right. Uh, about the only thing they may have is it might be the loophole that because he hasn't gone through the training, there's some uh, expectance that the that the device is safe because you don't sign the waiver if you've not been trained. You know, if you or I bought the equipment and we got trained on it, we're going to sign that little piece of paper that says, if anything happens, I don't blame the equipment manufacturer. Well, if he wasn't trained on it, he never signed that. Uh, now, you could say an experienced diver with this many dives would know that you're always taking your life in your own hands, especially when you don't get proper training for a particular type of diving. And they already commented, it was obviously common knowledge, that he did not like to use them. Yeah. So it's, now, it sounds like 
he used equipment he was not qualified to use, yeah. period. And that's, the other aspects about the pain medication and stuff, that's supplemental, but it would also, perhaps he was impaired. There's no reference to toxicology or anything, so that would be interesting. Yeah, that was something that you'd want to have because, you know, he it, it was prescribed painkillers, but somehow they're saying twice the therapeutic level. So the assumption is that he's not following his prescription levels and he's taking more of them. Uh, diving on less than five hours sleep is... I think that's a stretch, don't you think? It's not recommended. And also depending on what type of diving you did the day before. So I'm sure we have not heard the last of this. Uh, it looks like the trial's just getting started this week, and we will certainly follow up on it. I'm just curious also where they talk about the center. Excuse me. The center, when it gets water on it, and then it doesn't have water on it. I, I don't know how you could be using it, and suddenly it doesn't have water on it if you're underwater. Yeah, I'm not sure what they mean. If it's just humidity, is that there's certain that the electronic shorts out. I'm certain that these attorneys spent some time and were looking for anything that they could kind of go, yeah, see that there? That's what happened over here. Uh, and we're also talking five, no, six years ago. And things have really changed in the rebreather world in, in right. six years. Yeah. And, and Dive Right was not an early entry into the rebreather market. Theirs was an, a fairly established model. Um, I don't. Bottom line is, he was not qualified for the equipment. He used that equipment. He was at fault. Yeah, that, that's what my thought is. You know, tragic for his family to have to deal with it, but that you know, that's that's what you're you're trained in all parts of diving to get proper training for whatever you're doing, especially rebreathers, because you couldn't go and buy one. You know, and in a way I'm kinda of surprised she's not suing whoever gave her the re gave him the rebreather. That's what I was not gonna say that, but yes. Contributory negligence. Yeah. Why did you give him that whenever you knew he was not qualified? Yeah. Well sometimes things happen when you get somebody who, you know, a larger than life person who's considered to be an expert, you know, seven thousand dives, huge amount of experience. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to say no to that. I mean, if Jacques oh. Cousteau comes up, you know, is, is diving with you and says, hey, give me your whatever, you're not checking this card. Well, remember we talked about that other photographer who had thousands of dives, mm -hmm. but his dives were what, less than 20 feet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a surf it, photographer. Yeah, he Right. So yeah. it's like that's not the same thing. No. So you need to know the quality of the dives. But again, he used equipment wasn't qualified for. Yeah. And then here's the story that never goes away. In fact, it repeats about every three to six months. The Great Lake Shipwreck Mystery Reaches New Depths. A suspected piece of a Great Lake Shipwreck Mystery, the Le Griffin, was examined once again Friday in hopes of finding out whether or not it's part of a lost ship and piece of an international treasure. The piece of wood was first found 15 years ago, about 80 miles west of Charlevoix, using a laser measuring members of the Hexagon Manufacturing Intelligence, scanned the wood beam believed to be from Le Griffin. Laser tracker sent images to where they were scanning to a computer, creating a 3D model of it. What we can use for simulation purpose to really confirm that the measurements would match something that would go into a ship, more precisely, said application specialists with Hexagon Manufacturing Intelligence, Emily Odia. The ship arguably sank 
in the waters of Lake Michigan centuries ago, and since the age of 13, it has been Steve Liebert's mission to find it. In the past decade, Liebert's team has made several Lake Michigan dives in the shipwreck they believe to be the French vessel. It's a long dream that we've always wanted to do, said Steve Liebert, press of the Great Lakes Explorers Group. It's a most sought-after ship, probably one of the most sought-after in the world, if not the number one in the Great Lakes. Now that Liebert believes he has found part of the ship, he's working on proving that piece of the griffin through markings in the wood, and that's where hexagon comes. A lot of stuff we do is industrial stuff. We measure a lot of airplanes and cars, so it's the first time we've had a chance to scan something historical that might actually have a meaning, said O'Day. It's really important to think in history going back so many centuries and finding history and treasure. And they're doing it for free. Well, there's obviously an equipment cost. Right now, this is pro bono. We're just out here for the sake of history to help out, said O'Day. Steve Liebert hopes the more that it's studied, the more they'll learn and hopefully find out if it's, in fact, Le Griffin, the ship he's been searching a lifetime for. So what do you think, Mac? <laughs> well, there's another article. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where it's from, but it's talking about him and his comment on it. Uh, let me see if I can find something I thought was interesting, because I hadn't heard this part. Yeah, because th- th- this is a little different. Now, this isn't the same person who last year found the what they later said was like a piece of a fishing net. Yeah. Uh, and you've got several groups that are looking for it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Uh, some people are, are some of the most compelling is that the uh, the wreck crashed up on an island and and they they at one point had reports of uh, skulls and and pieces there I believe but if you go in Wikipedia and look up Le Griffin in fact we'll do that right now consult the Great Book of Everything the, the, the item that you're really going to find is you're going to find a drawing of it based upon a wood carving that they have no idea if it's of any value whatsoever. Because the wood carving would just be somebody saying, draw me a ship so that we can run something in a paper. You know, how how long ago they found it? or I mean, that, that drawing, yeah, I don't know. Because uh, the ship was launched in 1697, not, not 1679. Yeah. The, the item for me is, if it sank during a normal course of whatever and not pirated mm-hmm. or deliberately scuttled, you're going to find a cannon on it. There's supposed to be six. Do a magnetometer shot. If there's no metal on it, it ain't the Griffin. You got two, uh, four, uh, four regular cannon and two brass, and they're not the cannon that you think of on pirate ships. These are boarding, uh, repel border type cannons. They look like big shotguns. Mm-hmm. And they scatter shot. So when the Indians say flame of the dragon, that's because when it's shot, you got a bunch of flame coming out with lots of grape shot. It's really great for repelling borders. That would be to me the, the item that I found the cannon, therefore a lot more proof. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia looks like they have a few stories mixed up, so I'm not correct. Uh, but uh, some of the spots are saying, yeah, well, just, just go on Wikipedia if you want to hear more about it. We, we we cover it uh, plenty. We'll we'll have to see what comes of this. I I like the technology aspect. It I like the the three D scanning. I think you got. Uh huh. I know that at the uh, presentations we went to last month mm-hmm. on Thursday on ecology, the one or the the one gentleman talking about uh, shipwrecks and using ROVs to discover them said they've been finding the Griffin for three hundred years. <laughs> And it's like flavor of the month. Who says they found it this time? 
after 15 years, if you found it, seems like you would have found enough material to bring up and do something with as right. opposed to one piece of wood. Yeah. Well, and then if you did, even if you did find the griffin or that a piece of wood from the griffin, is that, was that where it was at? I heard part of that. Uh, one of the articles referenced that what he was looking at is in that corner of Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. Up toward Door County. Mm-hmm. And that put to different than other reports, which we got that was towards the bridge. Yeah. It's, it's one of those that is so old and been out there so long. It's going to be a challenge. I, I think your recommendation, which is find the cannon, which I'm picturing these cannon are not like what we watch in the swashbuckling movies. These are probably something just a little bit larger than a pistol. No, these are uh, three or four feet long. Oh, okay. I've got pictures of them, but it's hard for me to show it to you. Right. right. It's in one of the presentations. Also, oh, three or four feet long. So these are our longer cannon. Yeah, they're they're on a, a swivel. They go to the deck railing. Okay. Yeah, the deck railing. That's what I was thinking. And then they load them and then they fire them because they're you know they're a couple of feet long. Okay. And they're not you know they're you can put your hand around them. Uh, and again, they were for repelling borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back then, that would have been an awesome weapon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got a bunch of attackers, which most likely would be canoe-based, you know, either either trappers or, or Native Americans who may threaten the ship, and you fire some, some, some big cannons off the deck, and it's going to make people hesitate for a second. Yeah. Well, here is another, I, I call it almost a follow-up, because we, we seem to have been talking about dive chambers and uh, St. Kitts and Nevis commercial diving school is uh, claiming that they're now able to save lives. Uh, Many divers in the area uh, who are doing recreational diving, they had to be flown off the island to go and get uh, training. But now that they've, uh, they've added it, they said that the local divers suffering from the bends right here in St. Kitts are going to be able to be treated at no cost to them. They said uh, two local divers uh, were the first to benefit from the top-class uh, treatment derived from the decompression chamber after they were both referred to the dive school for treatment by the JNF Hospital. There's my understanding they haven't completed diving beyond 100 feet in one case, 120 feet in the other. Both divers exhibited systems of decompression sickness and were placed in the decompression chamber where they were treated and handed back to JNF Hospital, according to dive medical officer at the Lack of immediate treatment for both divers could have resulted in permanent injuries or death. So that's kind of nice. So this is a a commercial dive operation, which in the United States, don't commercial operations have to have their own depression chambers? Or have access to them, which was odd. I was having a lunch today, and I happened to look out of the window of mm-hmm. the restaurant, and I watched UCI drive by towing their chamber. When you say towing the chamber, was that the fall overboard and they're dragging it? Or? No, it's a portable, portable decompression chamber. So, but it's kind of like on a—is it on a barge then? No, no, this one is in the back of their trailer, being towed by a pickup truck. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. The, I, I was thinking you were talking about on the water. So no, you're, no, no, you're, no, no. So they've they've got it uh, towable. Well, that making it towable in a trailer makes sense because wherever you're doing your commercial work, you can have it there. Yeah, I mean, you can always lift it up with a crane and put it on board. So it looks like, and I'm going to guess that while they're, it's generous that they're offering it, 
that they've decided they need to have it just because of the risk involved and it maybe could be an insurance requirement. Yeah. I wonder if there's an opportunity for that in the Great Lakes. Is there, Would there be a way of taking advantage of all these chambers that commercial groups have in, the, in case a recreational diver needed them? I think the big one would be liability aspects. That's what people would think of first. Well, if you've got a good Samaritan rule, which basically says, you know what, you're not doing it as a course of action. You're not a hospital or something. So if you happen to offer it up, we're going to hold you not liable. I would imagine, though, in an emergent condition, you need it now. Wherever it's at, it's probably going to either be in use, which would be nice because maybe you could transfer a guy there, mm-hmm. or it's going to be in a storage facility someplace it's, for it to come up to speed it's going to take longer than right yeah i mean you know, I, ideally it's like we're fortunate here having at least for the time being we've got uh bronson over there in Kalmas, but you know there are many areas that don't have one or they're they're just not manning it like we talked about in florida and how about this just what we wanted to see nine new species of go- goby fish have been discovered in Michigan, they're invasive species. We're kind of hoping that these don't find their way here. Uh, but coral reefs are home to many animals, and the, the gobies are no exception. It said it's little is known from about the deep reefs from 50 to 300 meters beyond a region they own as the twilight zone. A recent study by a team of scientists from the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Institute, Deef, Deef, here, I, th- I think I need to have another drink. Smithsonian Institution's Deep Reef Observation Project revealed a cache of new species from deep reefs in the Caribbean, a study which was led by Smithsonian scientist Luke Tornabeen and Carol Baldwin. I got her name right. His I'm not sure about. Utilizing fish samples captured from the Twilight Zone of three different manned submersibles included, oh, I'm not going to name them. A uh, study was published in the Zoological Journal of Lineman Society, where the author's name described nine new species of fishes belong to a group known as the gobies. They're considered the most diverse family of marine fishes in the world, in addition to being one of the largest discoveries of new uh, mesophotoic fishes to date. And they darn things look like the damn gobies we've got, don't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... uh, well, you figure we've got 182 non-indigenous species in the Lake Michigan or in our area. 77 were introduced through ballast water as the most common pathway. Yeah. And we've been talking about a lot, you know, and the quag is the one that cost us a lot of money. Hmm. But the big one they've got coming in now is called the killer shrimp. There's a second one called the bloody red shrimp. Uh Obviously, we're waiting for the hammer to fall on the Asian carps, the big head and the silver. The next one besides the round goby, which is what we have, is the snakehead. And if you've seen that one, it's very, really ugly, has teeth. And uh, like the goby, you know, it's an aggressive fish. And what it does is uh, eats eggs by native fish, meaning it's a nest invader. Uh-huh. The only interesting part about the goby that we now have is... A lot of our fish now are starting to be able to eat them, generally because they don't have anything else. Yeah, you're going to eat them or die. Yeah. 
And then this next one, if you remember that uh, Florida power plant that sucked in the scuba diver or the scuba diver swam in, depending on this perspective, uh, they are now going to put in a barrier and the plant has been listed as sucking in over 4,100 sea turtles in the past decade, averaging more than one turtle a day. It's been sucked into the St. Lucie nuclear plant in Hutchinson Island in Florida, resulting in injuries and death. The T.C. Palm reported since the plant opened in 1976, about 16,000 turtles, mainly the threatened loggerhead and endangered green, have been affected. The federal government has stepped in to build a pipe grates on the three pipes. Each quarter mile long that runs in the ocean will take two years to build and test. This is the first step in addressing the issue, but the cross-hatched mesh grate will only protect about 27% of turtles that enter the pipe. Any smaller mesh would also stop water flow. Uh, St. Lucie plant is very unique. The number of turtles it captures just because of its location, biologist Cody Mott said uh, to the paper uh, T.C. Palm. Not many other facilities have this many turtles or have to deal with these issues. Biologists guess the turtle think the pipes are part of a nearby reef where they use as protection. Most of the turtles take the five-minute-long journey through the pipe, suffer small injuries such as cuts and scrapes. Data on how many killed are lacking, but in 2001, 0.8% of the 8,832 turtles who entered the pipes died from the journey. That's actually a, that's a pretty good amount that are living who are making it. Oh heck yeah! Yeah, since uh, 1978, loggerhead turtles have been in a threatened species list due to declining populations uh, as a result of lack of places to nest. This is according to National Geographic. Over harvesting, fishing, and hunting have also led to green turtles being classified as endangered. Those kind of areas are also breeding grounds, and they help the turtles as well as the other fish because of the warm waters. Mm-hmm. And the nutrients. Again, once you get in that tunnel, being smaller, like the turtles streamlined and used to swimming, yeah, they're not going to be bumped around like they are as a diver. And oftentimes, they use multiple tunnels, which reduces the flow rate. Right. And again, many times the plants are down or at minimal, and the flow rates are also minimal. And who's to say where the most of the turtles are coming through? Maybe they're looking for other. Well, also, when we, we covered this before, you said that they had a pretty big open area. Yeah, you got a four-bay area. Otherwise, everybody's, oh, my God, they're going to go get it chopped up by the pump. Well, that would put the plant out of business. So you've got to go through several layers of protection or screens before you get to your pumps. Yeah, And, th- and then some of the reasons why these turtles may be getting caught is they could be sick to begin with. Right. The one we used to find in our four-bay that were actually stuck to a screen or something, were damaged uh, quite often by lampreys uh, or disease. You'd find them, and they're they're really in bad shape, and not from necessarily cuts and having come through the tunnels because there's no big deal for a fish. Yeah. Now, cook plant, for example, uh, palisades and a few other ones around here, they got hammered by the environmentalists for you're sucking up fish eggs that are depleting our fish in the area. So they actually do pay a certain amount of money back to the the state to enable hatcheries and stuff to produce more eggs for the number that they may possibly entrap. Right. Now here they're saying that the uh, the the grates being put on while approving the grate, the National Marine Fisheries Service cap for turtles sucked into the pipes 
has been up to 1,143 from 1,000. The quota turtles allowed to be severely hurt or killed also increased with three loggerheads allowed for both categories each year. And how many predators kill three a year? Come on. Oh, <laughs> yeah, plenty. Plenty. Uh, so it sounds like a little bit of a trade that they, uh, you know, the the plant agreed to go along with having the grate put in. It doesn't even look like the plant's paying for the grate. It looks like the federal government's foot in the bill. Well, I don't think the government's been paying in uh, any of the nuclear plants around here for any updates on their tunnel systems. No. Uh, let's see. I think they also talked something about that. Uh, what prompted this last one was the diver getting uh, stuck into it. And then this one's a little bit off our normal track. The one reason I put it on is that is we've covered it in the past, and then uh, with my kids doing the the robotics this year, I thought this was interesting. But M A R M C volunteer judges underwater competition. This is out of Norfolk Mid Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center. Employees volunteered during Nautilus 10th Annual Marine Advanced Technology Education Mid-Atlantic Regional Underwater Competition. Let's let's cram a bunch of more letters together. At the old uh, Dominion University Recreational Wellness Center, Norfolk, April 30th. The competition encourages students to applied scientists, technology, engineering, and math, STEM skills that they would create underwater remotely operated vehicles or ROVs to participate in a mission to simulate real-life issues. This year's theme was From the Gulf of Mexico to Juniper's Moon Europa, ROV encounters in inner and outer space to highlight technology developed for exploration scientific use in both ocean and space environments. It's wonder to have so many volunteers here today because of the competition can't run alone. Not, uh, Nautilus uh, education specialist and uh, special program manager Susie Hill said we need underwater pool Mission judges, engineering judges, poster judges, as well as overall, overall logistic judge. It meant a whole lot to have the judges that have this kind of experience, the expertise in the areas like engineering and electrical design. Students test the ROV in four underwater missions, including photographing ocean samples of deep sea coral, surveying the ocean floor for model NASA mini cube space satellites, identifying oil samples using gas chroma, chromographs, charts, and repairing an oil wellhead. Teams ranged from scout beginner level to ranger advanced level and came from schools in Delaware, North Carolina, and Virginia to make up 15 teams. A panel of judges reviewed each team's ROV for design, safety, and teamwork skills during the production product presentation and an opportunity to ask students questions about their designs. I was judging the production portion of the competition. Uh, Project Officer Lieutenant Colleen Enloe said... As a water mission judge, I scored students in their ability to test their ROVs and competing the obstacles, challenge, and tasks we had for them. Judging is broken in different areas. In addition to competing the underwater obstacle course, students created product displays and presented their project to judges if they were trying to sell their product to a business. Mission specialists are based on science receiving calls from NASA wanting to put their ROV in the space. And it goes on. It's, it's quite a nice article. If you just were to uh, look at the title, M A R M C, you'll find out, for example, it, it says here, divers perform emergent USS San Janco work, uh, perform USS Angel blade changeouts. Uh, they're very freaking busy. 
uh, inspect Greek naval dive chamber, uh, repair USS Kearney and, and Suda Bay. So they do a lot of work. So, so that's that's not just a group, the Mid Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center. So right. that so that's a that's a uh, what it, what the name says. That's a a group who does maintenance throughout the world and and inspects facilities. Right. The articles I'm looking at are base are basically Navy Mills, uh, Nav C Navy, Global Security. Uh, let's see here, Domto Navy Mill. So it, it's obviously associated with the military, Navy, but there's a lot of other sidebar work they're doing at the same time. Right. Yeah, well, it's nice that they're able to get involved with the kids again doing some science and technology because if you don't get them started now, they can't decide that's what they want to do for a living. Yeah. And then we have some vessels that have been sunk to create a memorial reef. And we love to see more reefs. I'd like to see something in our neighborhood. Oh, certainly would. This one is out of Atlantic Beach, 108-foot retired U.S. Army tugboat, now rests at the bottom of Howard Chaplin Reef in memory and honor of James uh, Franciscanoni, uh, former North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries Artificial Reef Coordinator who died in 2014. The vessel was named the James S. Uh, Franciscone taken out the reef May 7th along with this vessel. The DMF also took out a 65-foot retired New York Harbor tugboat, the Tramp, which was sank in line with James uh, J. Franciscone. The two vessels will now form a new artificial reef, much like the ones that Mr. Franciscone helped create during his lifetime. Several local organizations have helped fund the memorial reef, including the Blue Rock or the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament, Tom Bennett, Big Rock's charity chairman and treasurer of Big Rock Foundation, says he thinks Mr. Frasconi would have been very pleased not only the reef, but the way people and groups came together to create it. I had a pleasure of meeting him several years ago. He is very dedicated to the artificial reef program and wanted to make it as great as possible. One of the guiding principles of Big Rock Tournament is promote sports fishing in Carteret County. I sent you a blurb video. Mm-hmm. Video is excellent. It actually has cameras on board as it's being sunk. Oh, I love it when they do that. And video of it after it sank. It's very, very good. Okay. You'll enjoy it. Anybody like to look at how it really does look from the inside? It's a pretty cool video. And I've muted it, and I'm, I'm watching the video. Oh, it's, yeah, this is a nice one. Yeah. Yeah, so you just have to search for this. This was a... Uh, Published on May 8th, 2016. Uh, nice quality cameras they're using. Good shots. Um, yeah, I'll have to take a look at that later, but that's excellent. Good find. That's right. about, that's, it, it, it reminds me of the North Shore. Uh-huh. Uh, because that's the way it looks. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know that one was accidentally, intentionally sort of scuttled in the middle mm-hmm. of it. Yes. And it's sitting on the bottom just like this one. Except this is much bigger. Yeah, this... I, how do you like it? They're going to make a reef, and they just had another tugboat sitting around. You know, we'll do two for. Yeah. How deep was that? Did they say? Uh, let's. Because the North Shore is in 150 foot. Let's see. I mean, 150 foot, I think, is a good depth because it keeps it low enough where you're really not going to be in impeding traffic. It usually going to have high spots of the wreck, which are going to get into recreational range. 
120 would have been really good, though. Yeah, because then you don't you, you know that you're you can't you can't go deeper than that. Uh, they don't say, but I bet you there's some there's going to be a reef website. I'm I'm picturing actually 80 feet. That seems to be what they do off the coast quite a bit. Yeah, good ambient light, and it settled really really nice. And then we have uh, the Thames River shipwreck that some people are considering to be a time bomb. This article is actually from weather.com, which uh, what caught my eyes, if you take a look at that original photo, yeah, isn't that beautiful? Uh, I, I don't know what that was. Uh, who did the scan? Uh, the SS Richard Montgomery, an American warship in the Thames River, is threatening London with 1,500 tons of explosives, including 2,000 pounds of high-explosive blockbuster <laughs> bombs, Fragmentation bombs and bomb clusters, various mm-hmm. explosive booster charges, and smoke bombs. It's not a case of uh, degrading relations with the U.S. former colonizers, but that the World War II shipwreck that uh, slipped its anchor in 1944 and ran aground in a sandbar near Sheerness. The sunken ship has steadily degraded since then, leading many area residents to wonder just when the ship might explode. The remit area for the explosion would be from uh, Margate to the center of London, local storing Colin Harvey told the BBC. It would leave Sheerness, a 30- or 40-foot wave that would beach sea defenses. Shipley's got a population of 25,000 people. Where would they go? Harvey fears that cluster bombs could fall through the corroding upper decks and detonate munitions below and lead to a blast that would level buildings, burst eardrums, and shatter windows. Now, not being a armament expert, but wouldn't it be that since it's underwater, that's going to absorb a lot of that blast? Yeah. And then, though, since it's originating shallow in the water, you're not going to have an 80-foot wave that is moving a huge amount of the ocean. Uh, I, I, I think they're overstressing this a little. Well, I don't think that, that after being down there that long, that uh, munitions are going to be that viable. Yeah. They said 1973, the Richard Montgomery was designated dangerous wreck and surrounded by a prohibited area marked with four lit cardinal buoys and 12 red danger buoys. The UK Marine and Coast Guard Agency said in a report, the United Kingdom's government's policies regarding the Richard Montgomery has been for the most part out of sight, out of mind. Expert advice has always been that the munitions are likely to be stable if left undisturbed. Maritime and Coast Guard Agency official Allison Crentuck told BBC, if you go and disturb them, you're increasing the risk factor. The government freely admits that an almost complete lack of knowledge of conditions of munitions on the vessel. A 2015 Coast Guard report states the multi-beam sonar and laser scanning survey techniques used to collect the data in the shipwreck structure cannot be used to accurately predict the amount or conditions of the mission's cargo. Some have voiced concerns that a terrorist could use the ship as a ready-made bomb, but the wreck is under 24-hour surveillance by Medway Port Authorities, both by radar and visually patrols in the area. Incursions and incidents like this are a result in an incursion are reported immediately to police. To the HM Coast Guard, and appropriate special support can be provided. If you're that worried about it, wouldn't you just blow it up? Well, it's like, here's great hellebo about nothing because almost complete lack of knowledge of the condition is known. Well, then go down and look. Right. Why? It's like, what's the issue? Go down and look and see if you have a problem. 
And then again, look at the ships that sank in 1945 through the war, similar to that one. Oh, yes. And what happened to their munitions? Yeah, there's there's plenty of uh, evidence of what the condition would be. Is it, this is not the wreck that the, they were saying as the mafia used to go down and get explosives from? No, I think that one was off Italy. I mean, that's what I thought, too. It's like, well, see, if somebody would do that, then you wouldn't have the problem. <laughs> they all been gone. They, they, they just, uh, you piece them out a little bit at a time. Yeah. Or the explosions would be minimal, you know, yeah. car here, car there. Or you don't have the committee who has to vote on it. The one guy makes a mistake, blows himself up. Problem solved. Yeah. Me, I'd want to go look at the shipwreck. That's a shipwreck there because I don't know what the water conditions are going to be. Well, I'm looking on the inside. Now, where are you going to do penetrations at? I bet what, you. We, we that, need to. Why is, that a, why is that a hazard, though? Yeah. It's sunk. Been there for years. I'm looking at the wreck. There's nothing basically usable. Yeah. Our, our UK listeners, if you could drop us a line, the show at scubaobsessed.com, I'd be interested to hear. I bet you there's some local information about this that uh, is going to be a little bit different. You, when you see an article like this, you wonder what the the avenue is. Did somebody not get their annual check or or something? Uh, Britain's biggest ever gold nugget. So, you know, if you don't have explosives, at least you can go find a nugget on a shipwreck or near a shipwreck. They're saying it's one of the biggest nuggets ever found on a ship or near a shipwreck. I wonder why the nugget is worth more than the weight value. Yeah, it's because they haven't talked to any of the uh, pawn shops that I know of. I mean, because three ounces is nice. So you figure four or $5,000 at most. Oh, so it's only three that's ounces? Not, that's how that weighs, three ounces. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I know it's unique to find a nugget, and they do sell more before you melt them down. Yeah, because the, they're pretty on their own. They're a little bit of art, but you're not going to get – yeah, you you try and get that. I think what that's telling me is that's what the sale price is that somebody wants. They're hoping to get 50,000 pounds for it. Yeah, you're you're right. Three ounces in U.S. dollars, you maybe six thousand dollars. If you saw somebody who liked the nugget, it's a, it's a good size nugget. They well, said right. it said uh, three ounces, which is about the same as a small chicken egg. And then later he said um, he was spoken out how his <laughs> excuse me how delightful it was at finding a twenty-three carat nugget, so believed to be part of a hundred and twenty million dollar haul. Now that part would make me interested. Yeah, he, he uh, 60-year-old gold prospector, kept his find secret for four years so he could continue to search the area for gold, only going public once he was sure there was no more there. It was discovered near the treasure-laden shipwreck in Wales. Uh, the the shipwreck, it was near, uh, sank in the hurricane in 1859. He said he was absolutely stunned when he saw the shimmering gold, adding the sun was out so the gold was gleaming and it was because his underwater was magnified so it looked huge i was really only expecting to find gold dust so i couldn't believe it was what when i realized it was a huge nugget now is he thinking that the nugget is just occurs there or is this something that could have been on the shipwreck my understand that other part remember what it said Part of a $120 million haul that went down the Royal Charter when it was shipwrecked in 1859. Mm-hmm. And he found that in 15 foot of water. I could spend a lot of hours out there looking around. If I found one, I'd look for the second. Oh, I'd, I'd spend four years myself. 
absolutely. You're not going to tell anybody, not until you pretty much said it ain't there. And I can't believe you wouldn't have had a metal detector with him. Oh, yeah. Once you've got that, I think that justifies the metal detector. Oh, heck yeah. He says, I spent 39 years prospecting and handled a lot of gold nuggets, but I thought I would find one so large myself. Britain's second biggest nugget was the Carnan nugget found in Cornwall in 1808, weighing 2.08 ounces. So that's the biggest one? Well, maybe that's what it is, that local history. They're going to, you know, it's because it's a record holder. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just watching the, the, the gold shows on the Discovery Channel too often. Or bearing sea gold, or whatever. Bearing sea gold, yeah, it's, that's the one. Give me that suction dredge. I'm gonna, I'd outdo them all. And I'm surprised they're not all dead either. Well, you figure the Holderman nugget found in New Wales, New South Wales, Australia, in 1872, weighed 290 kilograms. <laughs> now that's my idea of a freaking nugget. That is one. I'd like. I'd say the largest gold nugget there here was 2,316 troy ounces, which is 72 kilograms. Mm-hmm. That was in Victoria, Australia. So, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I want to find. You keep the three ounces. Yeah, like anything else, though, they, they say to find it, you have to look. Yeah. So you got to be out there looking for it. Well, good for them. Well, that I think we just cleaned up. Scuba in the news. Yeah. I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another season. WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Outdoors Network. Uh, you can follow them, listen to them. They've got uh, programs on hunting, fishing, scuba diving, anything in the great outdoors. Uh, let's see. I'll, um, before we go on to talk about diving, I did get an email or a, a message from uh, somebody talking about that the Great Lakes wrecking crew. Uh-huh. Yeah, Michael Michael dropped me a line. He says, if you get a chance, could you mention that the, the Great Lakes wrecking crew meet and greet on Gilboa? It's going to be May 13th, 14th, and 15th, so probably about the time you're hearing the, this podcast, it's going to be on. We also dropped the line on the Facebook page. So if you're in the area, that's always a, a great group of guys to go diving with. I know that... Uh, Bob and Kevin have uh, have gone in the times. And Bob is going this time, and it's also in the news the club newsletter. Okay. And uh, the club website under events. We got plenty of opportunity. We, 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 we warned you, so go out there. But we appreciate their, whoever it was from the group. Yeah. Give us a buzz. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Any, anytime you're, you're the group and you want us to do a shout-out anywhere in the world, we do have listeners all over the world. Uh, if you go and put a pin on the fan map, let us know where you're listening from. We always love that. We love those five-star reviews in iTunes and also on TalkShoe. Uh, so I understand that there was some there's some diving going on. Well, Kevin is diving like a crazy man. <laughs> Meaning he's diving a lot, not that he's crazy. Yeah. He's crazy about diving. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's been diving probably, it seems like, three times a week. Uh, he finished his uh, rescue diver course, I believe. He did that, been set up at, in Gilboa a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Working on his master diver now. Yeah. Uh, he's been doing a lot of research on different shallow water wrecks. And you saw the video he did on the uh, steamer. 
in Gull Lake, correct? No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, yes, yeah, a nice one. W- where did he post well, it? It's, it's, yeah, I think you're mentioned in it. You and Bob, you're talking about the uh, steamer that you guys saw in Gull Lake at the north end. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I have seen that one. Yes, that was a, uh, and that that is the steamer. He's he found it. I, he paste, posted one like a day or so earlier. Uh, it wasn't a video, but he said, I don't think this is the one. And then he posted the video, and that's the one that we were talking about. So it was. Uh, I, I'd love to talk to Kevin in person about it just to kind of see what his impression was. Right. And then he wound up having to realize he's going to have to go back and do some more scanning because he had, uh, uh, I want to say, how do you say it, not necessarily misinterpreted some data, but had the setup wrong. So he's going oh. to have to and revalidate some items. So he's going to be searching that again. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a, that's a lot of it is just getting your settings all set, understanding what you're looking. Um, You've never uh, been out to Woods Lake, have you? No, I haven't been to Woods Lake. Well, I was out there a couple of times with him. Uh, I was out there with him Monday, matter of fact, trying to recover a, a very expensive dive light. Was that, was that what mowing the lawn you guys were doing? No, that's different. That's a different day. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, the visibility, a couple of weeks ago, was 20 feet out there, and that's unheard of. Yeah. And, uh, I was out there two Mondays ago, and I think I had like 15. I probably had 10 to 15 uh, this Monday. Uh, but the algaes kicked in. Bottom is starting to grow like a weed. No pun oh, intended. Yeah. But the visibility until you muck it up is pretty darn good. So that's Woods Lake. Yeah, you. that's why you want to get in the water early, people. Oh, yeah. Don't don't wait till it's seventy degrees in the summer because all you're going to do is see green at that point. And that by that time of season, you need to be out in the lake. You need to be Paul, out in the big lakes. Yeah, Papa was visibility was three feet maybe. Well, I mean, it's way <laughs> more than enough for me. Now, you know? now is that they did the sonar treatment again? Uh, I'm not quite sure what they're using. My understanding they they've expanded the five year program. Uh, what was interesting, I don't know if you saw the pictures. Of our uh, freshwater barracuda? No. You didn't. Uh, they're a couple of feet long, and they're pike is what they are. But if you look at them, they look like barracuda when they're in the water, other than keeping their mouth open all the time. They don't do that. But they have teeth. Uh, we found a couple of those dead. And I, I looked at one trying to find what kind of what killed them. And uh, I did not see any lamprey markings, which is normally what we find. Because uh, mm-hmm. they were... They were some healthy-looking fish, other than they were trying to swim upside down on their bellies. So don't know what that was, but we're trying to find out if we find any more of them along the shoreline. But And Pawpaw's getting warmer. It's up in the 50s. It's almost wet to weather. Actually, Curtis uh, dove wet last week. Oh, he did? Yep, yep. Uh, let's see, Karen, I don't know if you've met Karen, one of our newer members. She's uh she had rotary cuff surgery, but she's been showing up anyway, just as uh, support and taking pictures. And her mother, who is 70, just got certified. Um, it'll be remain to be seen if she'll get into the colder waters in Michigan. She's certified in Texas. She said the water temperature there was 75. 75? 75. Huh. And that was a river. And depending on what the weather is, well, well, we were out scanning last week, mowing the lawn, looking for the bomber. Mm-hmm. And I mapped out where the uh, beach was at. And, well, 
supposed to be at. So in the area that we're looking, there's three aircraft. I hope to gosh we can find one of them. We need to. We're, we're due. We're, just through odds and, and time looking, We this is a season. I've said that the last four or five seasons now, but this is the season. We're finding something. I, I hope so. We're gonna we're scheduled for tomorrow, weather permitting. Last Friday was flat. So we stayed out till we got back at midnight. Yeah. So I mean it's flat, you take advantage of it. Oh yeah. And it's beautiful. That's just great time. Nothing beats being out in the water. Yeah. And I got the fish today, uh, so I'll rig that up tomorrow. So if you got a little chop then we can still go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little chop's not too bad if you're if you're towing it. So we'll find out. Hopefully it'll be nice. Today sort of sucked out there from the aspect of you couldn't see. Yeah. Now, uh, have you gotten any diving in the last week? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I was at Woods Lake. Okay. Papa. We need to get you back in the water. <laughs> oh, I do. Uh, I've just was kind of been under the weather, weather the last uh, really a month and a half between robotics and just not feeling well. I haven't done it. I'm probably kind of borderline now. I, you know, if it was a nice day, I, I could go out. Well, don't forget to read this month's newsletter. We talk specifically about what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I did mow. So uh, my advice to anybody is if you want to see what my property looks like mowed, you need to get out now because this <laughs> may be the only time. Google, if you are if you got the satellites going, now's when you need to take the photo because uh, I've got 12 acres and you, it's rare to get as much of the property. I didn't have all 12 mowed, but I did have where the along the driveway, along the road, Around the house, probably a good two acres plus. What was it you lost the scuba tank in the snow? Did you find that yet? Yes, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, I have found my my, uh, and and I I found that within a, within a few days. I had to go out and probe for it because what, what's the problem is that once it gets to that point, uh, it, who knows? I mean, I'm afraid that the you know cause, uh, Jim, my dive buddy, does plowing for me. And you know, I don't want them to uh, launch a valve off a, a tank and have it go rocketing. Uh, but I did find some. Uh, I did have a fin in the in the in the ground as I'm mowing. Um, I see something in the area I haven't quite gotten to. And there there was that there. It's just you know when the lawnmower broke, which it broke. Uh, I can't remember now. Probably the podcast talked about it like August or September, and uh, had to buy parts. And I finally got those going. I've I've, I've still got more parts to do. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to mow again or not. So this is the mowing podcast. Yep. Well, we got the club meeting on Tuesday. Tuesday, yep. And uh, hopefully I can make it. And SAS has started their diving, so they're on, they had one on uh, Wednesday. I think Richard went to that one. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll have that on Wednesday. We have the Thursday Thursdays on Friday, uh, Thursday. Yep. Then we got the weekend. Yeah. And that should be, Bob will be back, so he will be wanting to hit the Havana. Yeah, and and what is uh, the Indiana folks doing? Do they have a, a dive day? Is that a Tuesdays as well? Theirs is a Wednesday, as I Wednesday. remember. Okay, so and, and, yep, they're, but and they're going south, of course, which I'd expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, this is the time. You know, get into your dive shop. I haven't been in a dive shop either. I've I've got a tank down there. I've got to pick up. Oh, I just feel so far behind. I'm, well, almost John a, just completed uh, another course. Uh, They've got the uh, doing the electro check of your neck of the of the tank. Yes. During your VIP, you got certified for that. Yep. 
And that's a good skill to have to do to be able to do those tests. Yep. So if you haven't had a VIP for a while, might be time to get one. Yeah, I'm getting close to hydro on one tank. I think I can do a uh, a visual one more time, and then I've got to have, have a hydro. Yeah, I'm trying to rotate my stock to use my my newer ones. Mm-hmm. And I've got a tank in the back of my car uh, to get back <laughs> to you. It's full. <laughs> Check the pressure disc. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> On a hot summer day. Yeah, no, the only thing linking in my car is the tires. I got a right front with a, a cracked stem. Yeah. I finally got the uh, leaky exhaust valve, open exhaust valve stock. I got that fixed on the plane. So I've been doing a little bit of aerial surveys. I found an interesting phenomenon that I took pictures of. Uh, it's, a, it's a half moon arc from yeah. the right side of Grand Mirror to the left side of the burial lines at Cook Plant. Huh. And it's an interesting pattern because to get that pattern, the structure on the bottom has to be directing the current in a big arc. So there's some stuff that might be interesting out there and take a look at. Yeah, we should take a look at it. I, I know they don't like anybody looking, but we may have to look. Well, we wouldn't be looking on their property. We just started the Grand Mirror. It's north of Grand Mirror. So you've got a 70% of the arc is not even near the plant. Well, I'm not even talking about the plant. I'm talking about Grand Mirror. I don't think they like anybody talking about shipwrecks around there either. Well, there's there's some out there. Uh, we didn't find any aircraft or anything like that, but we found some very interesting geological formations that we're going to have to dive. Because you'll be out there, you'll see your sand, and you've got your wave actions, and all of a sudden the bottom gets really gnarly. So it's possible that it used to be a underwater a river. Oh, okay. But uh, we're anxious to get out there, and that was only in like 45 foot of water. Now, is this north or south? This is north of the North Pier, but south of the intake tunnels for the uh, waterworks off oh. of Gene Clock. Huh. Yeah, that's a very... Uh, small area, relatively small area. So that, yeah, that'd be interesting to see what that is. Yeah, that's what I am. It couldn't be our propeller-driven object, could it? Don't know. Got it. Got to look. Yeah, that would be awesome. Oh, that wouldn't that be? Yeah, seems a little too far in, but who never yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you got to get healthy. Jim's got. Sinus issues, so he's got to get healthy. Yeah. Ken's working his butt off. Somebody's getting <laughs> retired. Yeah, it's, yeah the, the, those retired guys working all the time. Well, like he says, it's totally different when you don't have to go to work. And you can say no. He said your whole attitude changes. It's like you're in control, not your, yeah. you know, some guy sitting behind the desk trying to tell you what to do. So he sort of likes that. Yeah. Yeah, plus, yeah, it's... Just the feeling that you don't have to is nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like there's something else that we need to be covering, but I can't think of it right now. You know, all, all our, our canned speeches, you know, why, why, why aren't you diving? It's perfect time to go diving. It's May. If you haven't hit the water yet. <laughs> the, the, then you're probably June, me. <laughs> June, July, and August is. Oh, well, you got an ice dive in this year. 
No, I didn't get an ice dive. I didn't make it. I, I'm, I'm, I like turkey dive. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, what, is that six months now? I bet it is. I, I yeah. just, I had such a good January, February. I forgot everybody else didn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I'm, I need to. And I'm to the point now where I've got to like quadruple check everything. You know, where you, you have the muscle memory and you ha- you know everything is and everything's set. Cause there was a, there was, there was a while I was diving. It was like every other week, at least. Yeah. You know, trying to get back to my old, you know, I, I like to be back to twice a week. Uh, well, and I'm also what I'm running into is, you know, my daughter's, you know, finishing up her junior year. My son's finishing up his freshman year. And they're both very, they're both overachievers involved in everything. So they're both in robotics. My daughter's in tennis. Looks like tennis is going to go to state competition. Uh, so it's just been crazy with that. So. Well, good. But that's called scholarship. <laughs> yeah. So encourage that. <laughs> well, you, did I tell you what we're doing for my daughter this summer? No. We, we told her, because it's not like either of my kids don't have a good work ethic. We've, they've never had a problem with that. So she wanted to get a job, and we told her, you know what, it's between your junior and senior year. If she goes and applies for a one scholarship a day during the summer, then we'll call that her job. And hopefully she does more than that. But I had a friend who I know through robotics. His kid did that between their junior and senior year and was awarded over 280000 in scholarships. That's what you do. So that's what I'm, I'm saying. There's the most you'd make in the summer would be two thousand dollars, and the only time that anybody wants a teenager to work is when you don't want to work. So just spend the time, get ready, you know, for college. I mean, this is really her last summer because of your your senior summer going into college. She may even go early, and and my daughter, she's going to graduate. She had a friend who's a year ahead of her who she graduated with associates from college before she graduated from high school. There's a lot of those programs here now that are available. Yep. And my daughter is in the Math Science Center, which is uh, many, not all the classes, but most of them are college credit. She's also uh, does some of the PLTW, which is a technical program at the high school, and she's been accepted into the medical program because she wants to be a doctor. So she's been accepting the medical program, which that's all college credit for next year. So she'll definitely have her freshman year out of the way and possibly part of her sophomore. And we've been working on making sure all those credits will transfer. Right. There's a, there's that new program out that you do five years. You don't graduate from high school for five years. And when you graduate, you get your diploma plus your associates. Yeah, and I think that's fine. Uh, but what we're seeing is that really the uh, the overachievers, there's probably three or four kids a year. We're graduating with associates. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the nice part also is these are not necessarily programs for college, but it is technical courses. So when you get out, you've got skills for a job. Well, and that's and that's something to, the the point out. And it's really not topic of the podcast, but we'll talk about it anyway. Is that there's too many kids who are going into college because they feel like they're obligated. If you're a smart kid with a good work ethic, you can you can graduate from college, but you really have to look at what is it you want to do and do you need a college degree for that? Not everything requires a college degree. And in fact, a college degree for many kids is just going to be a student loan they have to pay back. We've got trillions of dollars in debt 
that is owed by students who have gone to college and not every it would be interesting to see a study of whatever you graduate with how many people are using that degree in whatever they end up doing I pretty much agree. I, I realize a lot of people at the businesses I've been at, they if you're any good, you're not working what you were doing when you're hired in ten years ago, you're a supervisor. Which right. means the the skills that you had you're not using because you know you're a manager. Right. Well and that's what it is. Uh, well and here's what's happening like at, at the place that I work, not in the job I do. I'm in I'm a technically technology strategist. And I actually prototype and create new products. Uh, but the business, which is primarily printing, we're having a heck of a time finding people to run the equipment, to do those jobs. And those aren't just you, you walk out of, you graduate from high school and then two days later you can go do this. Uh, they're not quite an apprentice program like that would be for, uh, welding or for, uh, electrician. But it's something that you have to have the aptitude to, you have to like to do, and you have to be have a good work ethic and do it. And they're just not finding people. These a lot of these these careers don't have enough density in an area to get any schools to to develop people for them. And just matching people up to do it is getting to be a challenge. Yeah. And what my concern is, and what I'm always trying to coach the rest of the business on, is I would rather see the equipment not running than to put people who aren't up to the task of running it or keeping people who, for other reasons, aren't good workers there because you, you create a whole other set of problems. But that's a little bit off off the, the track. Well, you got anything you want to plug before we head on into the end of the show? No, that uh, I, I really do like hearing from people. And, again, if we don't get feedback, we don't know what to either emphasize or, or keep our mouth shut about. Uh, and we're usually good about not getting too political sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, feedback, tell us what you like and what you don't like and what you'd like to hear about. Yeah. And, and, and is, there, is there anything you'd like us to cover research? We do have some access. I mean, we know 20 or 30 dive shop owners. We've got links into the man, you know, the dive equipment industry, travel industry. So if there's something you're interested in, uh, you know, advice on how to take a trip or how what what to learn next. Just drop us a line, give some ideas for show because we've we've got some opportunity there. If you know somebody who you think you'd like to have us interview, we haven't done an interview in a while. And it's probably about time to rattle that tree and see if we can have some people come on the show. Or even if it's yourself, if you want to come on the show, drop us a line. If we maybe we'll do a quick test program in advance. See if you're if you've got what it takes. Well, I do have quite a few bad jokes. I I, I kind of on a roll. So let um. How about a number between one and five, Mac? Four. Four. Okay, let's do four. Okay. A psychiatrist was counting a group therapy session. A psychiatrist was conducting a group therapy session with four young mothers and their small children. You all have obsessions, he observed. To the first mother, Mary, he says, you are obsessed with eating. You even named your daughter Candy. He turns to second mom, Anne, your obsession is money. Again, it manifests itself in your child's name, Penny. He turns to third mom, Joyce, your obsession is alcohol. This too manifests itself in your child's name, Brandy. 
At that point, the fourth mother, Kathy, gets up, tells her little boy, uh, takes her little boy by the hand and whispers, come on, surface support, we're leaving. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, when you when you when you name your kid surface support, that's uh, that's. I I don't know. My daughter walked into the dive shop and she goes, <sighs> reminds me of my youth. <laughs> Was that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> ah, the smell of neoprene. You know, I can understand the smell of napalm. Or I, I remember the smell of army tents. I yeah. really do. There's a T-shirt there. I love the smell of neoprene in the morning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>